You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome back, dear listener, to PGAP after a brief hiatus. Did you miss me? I certainly miss you. So if the feeling's not mutual, it's a bit of a weird relationship, but here we go. Now, we have rocked the boat because I found during the intros and the outros of the last seasons, I felt a bit weird talking to myself between you and me reading from a script. So I thought to spice things up that I would bring in a co-host and who better to bring in, but Mark Allen from Town Planning Rebellion. Hello, fellow co-host. Do you want to say hello to the dear listeners? Hello, dear listeners. It's uh, good to be here, and it's a great honour to be assisting Michael in this very important podcast, and I hope that I can play a, a small but important role in, in this new season. What season are we in now? We're in season four. Season four. So yeah, this is fantastic. Almost two and a half years now, going from strength to strength. Our highest performing episode was during season three, and that was with Dr. Alex Borman uh, with the public housing episode. Very nice. Very good. And a very important topic it is too. Yes, you're slightly biased being from Town Planning Rebellion. Oh, I I, I do have to declare my bias up front, but the Town Planning Rebellion sort of gives it away a bit. That's okay, I'm biased with population, and that's why one of the top ten performing episodes was the World Population Day special, Karen Schrog and uh, Madeline Weld and Valerie Allen. And during that time, PGAP briefly hit the top 6% of global listens. That's fantastic. That's a great milestone. It's so good. It was one thousandth of the listens of the worst performing Joe Rogan episode. That's how good it was. You are making fantastic strides <laughs> to be one thousandth towards Joe Rogan. It's a, it's an important step forward. I mean, the key now is to get as many followers as Russell Brand. I think he's uh, lost a few after the last couple of years. No, <laughs> he's being... still gaining them. He's oh, like is a, he? Well, his um, YouTube channel's got like six million. And I mean, some of his episodes I absolutely love, and some of them I'm a little bit unsure about. But that's good. He keeps you on your toes, does Russell? He really, really does. And it's all about, um, well, this is what PGAP is all about, bringing in people with different perspectives. If we all can agree on that infinite growth on a finite planet is perhaps not the best way to go. There are a myriad of other ideas of alternatives out there. Firstly, before I ask you on why you don't like growth very much, tell us a little bit about yourself because we have interviewed you in part on two occasions, but it's worth to knowing one's co-host. So tell us a little bit about Find Self. My background is in town planning, that's what I studied and I used to work as a town planner but I originally went into town planning because it was um, my way of trying to make a difference environmentally and then my journey into town planning and the intricacies and complexities around that issue led me 
to the inevitable conclusion that we cannot continue to live in a society that thinks we can have infinite growth on a finite planet. Something that you'd think mathematically just makes sense anyway, but we're so kind of in a society where we take that for granted, you actually have to sometimes have an epiphany. And it's like, hang on a minute, you know, we can't keep increasing densities forever. You know, there's a certain limit to urban sprawl. It's absolutely critical that town planning is a, a central or certainly a fundamental part of the overall discussion. So my role is to try and make sure that town planning is very much part of the conversation. It doesn't get hidden away um, while other important issues like um, green energy kind of take precedence. So we, we need to make sure that it's a that the, all the various complexities around what we need to do are there and that includes town planning. And town planning is such an overlooked concern, particularly given that property developers have such a stranglehold, um, literally and figuratively, on our economic system and that the way we all live. The property developers are such a big part of the picture and I've always maintained we kind of give them a bit of a free ride in the broader environmental discussion. We do, and the development lobby, as you say, has a, has a huge influence. You only have to look at the influence of the property council and the power that they have. They also have an impact on population policy as well, which is obviously an area that you're very interested in. And because I'm involved and interested in sustainable planning, uh, the population issue is an inevitable part of, of that. You can't ignore the issue of population growth when you're a sustainable town planner. And it's very true that the, the development and real estate lobby are very, very big and they play a big role in the growth-based society that we have. And we need to challenge that. And one of the ways of challenging that is to show how we can actually change town planning towards something that is planning for people and nature and putting those first, people and human and non-human nature ahead of short-term profit. Exactly, and you bring up population as well, and it's good to mention that um, Sustainable Population Australia support post-growth Australia podcasts. And the great thing about SPAR is they've let PGAP talk broadly about the growth issue and even bring in a range of guests uh, who all have different opinions on it. And I hope to date that I've been able to have amiable conversations with some of the differences in opinions without it having to descend into I'm right and you're wrong, which leads into the other thing you do, which is holistic activism, the other great movement that uh, you are founded and part of. So do you want to say a little bit about holistic activism? So really holistic activism is a, is a repackaging of principles and ideas and perspectives in a way that hopefully might be of use to some people. I helped to sort of formulate the package that is holistic activism through my experiences as an activist working in town planning, but also looking at the issue of population and discussing that issue and seeing how it is such an emotive issue and how it can descend quite quickly into um, conflict. So for me, it's like, well, how can we understand the fact that in order to change the world and change the system into something that is much more holistic and nature-based and less egocentric, 
We also need to look at our inner worlds as well. Holistic activism is about taking a different approach to activism where rather than trying to uh, necessarily call people out, it's about basically um, building upon nuance and looking at ways that we can find the common ground and understand that we are not going to change the world with everyone having the same opinion on every issue. But if we look to build on the areas of common ground, that way we can find a pathway in to maybe tackling some of the areas where we don't have the common ground. Because there are a lot of conflicting opinions and perspectives and we are finding our way creating this new system. We all understand that we need to change things and that's the key issue. You know, the other day I was on social media arguing with someone over a petty point of minute difference and as a result of that it didn't actually change the system the property <laughs> developers still went to the bang house prices still went up um, the planet still went to hell in the handbasket so i was really surprised by that because i was getting such a dopamine rush knowing that i was right and they were wrong so over this petty difference oh, what a waste of time i was dumbfounded <laughs> it's much better that we argue amongst ourselves <laughs> I think next time I'll have to argue with them longer or even a minute point of difference. And if that doesn't work, I might have to uh, think about this holistic activism. <laughs> it's baby steps. No, it's it, every step helps, Michael. Every step helps. <laughs> no, I've been um, taking holistic activism principles uh, with me throughout this series and in all the work that I do. Um, and I do feel that it's helped my sanity and hopefully my outreach as well oh, and so i so i thank you wholeheartedly for well, that even though i joke oh it's good to hear that you know and and you know i even though i i promote holistic activism and i've written about it and i run workshops on it i don't always sometimes i slip and get angry <laughs> <laughs> and i guess there is a place for anger as well <laughs> speaking of anger um, we're going to talk about uh, my year of hell with Albany, the system and asbestos, um, which will be fun. You can help me bring some holistic activism techniques as I hyperventilate on air. But before we do that, we're going to run through a couple of current events now, the first one, speaking of population and spa-supporting PGAP, is it's going to be 8 Billion People Day on November the 15th, and that is when the global population reaches 8 billion people. So, Mark, how do you feel about sharing the planet with 8 billion traumatised souls? <laughs> well, indeed. I think it's a reflection of the fact that we still have got quite some way to go before we can look forward to the population of the world starting to stabilise and even decline. Um, some parts of the world, obviously, populations are already in decline, um, like in Russia, for example, Italy, Japan. But there are other parts of the world where populations are surging. And of course, in countries like Australia, we artificially increase the population to compensate for the fact that there are lower fertility rates because a growth-based system, certainly in, in Australia and Canada and the Anglosphere, growth-based economics relies heavily upon population growth. 
So we still have a long way to go in terms of how we have a mature and nuanced approach to the population issue. But as I say, um, really, if we accept the fact that degrowth is okay and that populations don't have to keep increasing and that population stabilisation is okay, and we accept the fact that all of the important social parameters that lead to the stabilisation of populations, such as empowerment, education, family planning, are all issues in their own right, then it really isn't a huge issue. I mean, if we all agree on the fact, those two issues, one, it's okay for populations to stabilise and decline, and there are benefits to that. We don't have to keep building more and more houses. We can look at improving and maintaining and retrofitting what we already have. We don't have to keep clearing land for agriculture. We can actually start looking more at how we can regenerate the, the land we've already got and rewild. So there are there are benefits to population stabilising environmentally. And at the same time, that's that's the natural trajectory that happens when people reach the certain social parameters. So it really doesn't become a major issue if we frame it in that way. And this is what I try to do when I frame the population issue. It is a very unique and very nuanced perspective. It's been developed over years of, of your activism in this field out of the necessary um, necessity of talking about population in a town planning context. And I really appreciate how your um, framing of the issue has evolved over the years. Well, thank you. And, and that evolution, the holistic activism came out of how looking at how to frame issues like population. So thank you. Yeah. Now, what do you, yes, specifically you, listener, which is your first day, um, think about 8 billion people? Now, SPA is running a competition in which in 100 words or less that you tell them what 8 billion people means to the planet, to the environment and to you. That competition runs now until about, I think, the 11th or 12th of uh, November. It will be judged. <laughs> there will be a first and second winner, and the first and second winners uh, win a Coles or Woolworths uh, voucher. So it's our way of keeping the growth system perpetuating. But, uh, <laughs> but in the short term, it might ease your cost of living pressures as a growth-based system does us in from all angles. We've all got one foot in the system and one foot trying to get out of that, eh? Yes, and some of those... Uh, opines might be collated and then shared publicly. Uh, Your information will be kept confidential, only your first name and your state of residence. It's open to all Australian citizens who are not members of Sustainable Population of Australia. So the link will be in the show notes. And yes, the other thing is uh, Liz Truss. <laughs> In Liz we trust. <laughs> now, you know, since we got rid of Scott Morrison, at least as a PM, God knows what he's doing now, probably a high-paying job somewhere, he used to be the enemy I love to hate. Mm. Like, I'd watch YouTube clips mm. of him just fucking up. Mm. 
And I kind of lost that. Well, Sean McIlef did a great, a great parody of him. I mean, on that show, he's not Sean himself, but one of the actors. He was so funny, wasn't he? I loved it when he lumbered off. Yeah, when he lumbered off. I do miss some of those parodies, yeah. Now, when we lost Scotty from marketing, uh, there was a void in my procrastination. (laughs) (laughs) And then Liz came along. Mm. Um, and she just, uh, I love to hate her in a way that I just couldn't love to hate Boris. Her anti-charisma, it's like she creates a field of negative charisma that's really fascinating. Mm. It's like she's so uncharismatic, it becomes charismatic again. But she said something about the anti-growth coalition yes. trying to undermine growth and I didn't know we were that big but um, by her saying that I think she set a few wills in motion. It's quite ironic because she used the anti-growth coalition as an insult but for a lot of us it was like yes that's a really good idea we should do that we should form an anti-growth coalition what a wonderful idea so one of I'm hoping that the the greatest legacy of Liz Truss's short prime ministership is the creation of an anti-growth coalition that continues to grow. It's good when degrowth people grow. Yeah, well, I know. That's the <laughs> irony. Is it? You see, this is the thing. I always say to people, things can still grow in a post-growth society. They just don't have to grow. So good things can grow. Which reminds me of a little bugbear. It's like um, when I tell people, oh, I'm into the post-growth and degrowth movement. And sometimes you get a very clever person. And uh, yes, but it all depends on what you're saying is post-growth. Some things can grow like children and trees. So you need to define what it is you're not growing. And to me, it's fucking obvious. It's when the politicians talk about jobs and growth. You know, they don't need to define it. We all know what they mean by growth. It's growing the economy and GDP. You see it all around you with the next bogus overdevelopment and bogus road project. So it's clear to me that that's the growth that well, we're talking about. Yeah, it's like, for example, um, um, an aeroplane company, they can reach a certain stage where they say it's actually not environmentally friendly to keep growing our company, flying people across Australia, but what we'll do is we will work towards um, you know, improving trains or we don't have to make lots of money building more and more houses. We've got plenty of jobs available, maintaining, rebuilding, renovating removing asbestos from houses, we'll come to that later. Plenty of work is enough potential for everyone in Australia to have a job, if they want a job, without having to grow GDP, just improving and maintaining and retrofitting and creating low carbon nature friendly communities is enough. But that means that we we have to not use GDP as a measurement. But some things will grow. Um, hemp growers will will increase, maybe. You know, um, so people who make really good quality mock meat out of regenerative pea protein, people who create precision fermentation breweries. There's going to be all kinds of things that will grow in a in a post growth society, but a lot of things will shrink as well. And it, what's important is it will be okay for things to shrink if society deems that that's the right thing in terms of working within limits to growth. And the world won't fall in if things shrink because there will be other options that people can can do. 
I'll know what to say to people when they say, oh, we have defined growth for me, though, other than telling them to fuck off. Well, which isn't very holistic <laughs> activism of me. But, you, can, uh, you can think but, that you can think. For, no, no, don't. <laughs> I mean, I've just blabbered on. There's probably a more succinct and better way of phrasing it. Uh, I think it would be good, actually, to sit down and work out a really good succinct answer to that, because it does come up quite often because people say this is why sometimes people use steady state system, because steady state system doesn't have degrowth in it. And, and people panic when they hear degrowth sometimes. <laughs> and we need to assure people that, you know, degrowth really means moving away from GDP as a measurement and that it's a bit more nuanced than the fact that everything's going to de- degrow. But yeah, it definitely requires more more thinking about how to frame that issue, I think. And tell us a little, just a little bit more about the Anti-Growth Coalition, how that formed and how you've been uh, involved in that thus far. There, there was a, it really started with a Twitter account and a Facebook group and it's still, it's still growing. They have a web page now. Um, so I kind of noticed that it emerged on Twitter as the Anti-Growth Coalition And then I saw there was a really good website, Facebook group. I can see that it's growing in that respect on social media. Um, How it's going to grow from, I keep saying grow about degrowth. See, there we go, you see, folks, embrace the paradox. The degrowth degrowth movement is growing. Lots of jokes. Lots of jokes, yeah. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to get in early and going back to the population issue, because the degrowth movement does embrace that it's okay for populations to stabilise and even decline and that that's okay, the issue of population will inevitably be fundamental or play an important role in the ongoing degrowth narrative. And I've noticed that in other areas, such as the Join the Degrowth Revolution, which is another substantial social media discussion platform about degrowth, Feel free to check it out on Facebook, Degrowth Join the Revolution. They've also got some subgroups or spin-off groups on population, housing and agriculture. Check them out. But what I noticed with that group is that the population issue became very, very divisive very early on. And it's still very divisive now. If someone posts about population, it spirals into unnecessary conflict. And it can actually slow the movement down. So for me, I thought it would be good to get in early and actually write to the people running, people who are running the anti-growth coalition and come up with a suggested, uh, not policy, but a suggested response and approach to population that is suitably nuanced and hopefully will act to de-escalate any kind of conflict around the population issue so that it doesn't have the impact of slowing what is uh, crucially such an important movement. This is the the, the draft policy that I've I've written for them. It says, The Anti-Growth Coalition acknowledges that fertility rates decline and populations stabilise and even shrink when important parameters are met, such as universal access to family planning and education. We realise that the factors that lead to population decline stroke stabilisation are all important factors in their own right, irrespective of the population issue. We also recognise that it is okay to embrace the stabilising and declining populations that occur when people have the opportunity to make informed choices. We therefore reject the fear of population decline that is perpetuated by growthist interests and understand that this fear is pursued because of their desire for growth in GDP. 
It is true that many societies have ageing populations, but this is something that every population must face before it starts to stabilise and shrink in size. A society that is not concerned with growth at all costs can ensure that more people are employed in the caring economy in a way that can better accommodate an ageing cohort. Also, that the role of older people as caregivers and volunteers is properly recognised in a society that is not driven by GDP. While we do not want population to be a distraction from the urgent need to lower per capita footprints, especially in the global north, we do recognise the benefit of being better able to transition our agriculture and town planning away from having to feed ever more mouths and having to house ever more people towards better regenerating what we already have. This could be through rewilding, regenerative farming, retrofitting our suburbs or the slower pace of development that occurs with urban regeneration. In conclusion, all of the social parameters that lead to reduced fertility rates should be integral to a post-growth society because they are all important issues in their own right. We reject any fear-mongering around stabilising and declining populations that accompanies this and instead regard it as an opportunity to better work with and regenerate land that has already been impacted by human activity. Amen. Thanks. You know, they, they got back to me and they said they're keen to work with me on this issue, so I'm really happy about that. That's amazing. Check out Andy Grove Coalition too. We'll provide a link on the notes. And, um, yeah, all your roads of activism have led to this point and this framing and that's really great to hear hopefully i can frame some other things at some point <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about asbestos frames oh yeah now. we can talk about asbestos frame so first of all it's probably worth mentioning that i moved to albany last year 2021 around july and by sheer coincidence you also moved to albany around September yes, indeed. Uh, last year. and um, Part of a movement of people towards <laughs> Albany. <laughs> One would almost think we enjoy spending time together, but uh, little do they know. That would be a rumour. <laughs> <laughs> so we both have had asbestos adventures that kind of feed into the kind of rental, uh, home ownership, churning cycle that all of us in Australia are part of to a bigger or lesser degree and with your help and superb editing skills I've released a blog a cathartic blog on both this podcast this podcast has a blog so I'll put the link in the notes and also on medium.net where I've got like an author profile it's called Something on the lines of one year in Asbestosville, an ode to systemic failure. Good title. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I don't think that's the title. I think I just came up with a better title now. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. But, but I'm not editing this anymore. No. That's it, that's it. You all no. have to. But if you go to the listen option on MediumNet, you get like a robotic American voice. That's great. Talking at at you about it for 15 minutes. Listen to the robot, folks. It's great. But, uh, yeah, let's start. So when I first moved to Albany mid-last year, and so there was a narrow gap to find some 
immediate accommodation in Albany. And so I went with my dad to the real estate offices because my dad very kindly offered to be a banker father, you Mm. see, um, because you can't get a foot in the door if you've had the audacity to be under 50 years of age Mm. and be working in a job for the betterment of society, which means you get a five-figure salary. Don't you think of getting on the housing ladder unless you've got a legacy of um, of family entitlement behind you. Well, quite. Yes. <laughs> um, so we both did a tour of real estate agent offices, and as we all know, I absolutely hate real estate agents. So I was kind of had to do the sign of the cross before we <laughs> entered them. And, oh, they had so much fun saying, Albany is up and coming. Ooh, you won't find anything for less than half a million. And ooh, you want to rent. Ooh, ooh, it's not cheap. And there's a long wait list. And uh, my favourite was, oh, because West Australians can't go to Bali and they're all bored, basically, they're all buying property down south. Seriously, is that one of the things they say? Which is what entitled people do My goodness. when they can't fly up and down burning lots of carbon overseas. They then buy property wow. down south to while away their hours. <laughs> yeah, it's quite amusing, isn't it? It's it's it's, it's ruefully. I mean I mean this whole story's ruefully amusing that this is as there's so much clusterfucky, you almost don't know where to start. But um anyway I had a choice between somewhere really, really out of town in which the current tenants were already inside the house when we did the inspection. And it was really, just a really, really odd experience. Um, And there was this other house which was a really weirdly structured fibro dwelling, but it was walking distance from town. And I thought, all right, well, um, it'll do for a few months until... And so I put an offer for both places and they both got accepted. And I thought, well, God, given given that apparently the competition is like a string of 100 people, I better accept one of them. And so I went through the fibro box. Now, like most people, like most West Australians, because I'm born and bred in Western Australia, I've kind of put asbestos out of sight, out of mind. It's one of those things that was a Wittenoom disaster that was a, a, became part of a Midnight Oil song. And you've got to watch out for the fences around the houses a bit. But largely, it's a thing of the past, so we moved on from that, which we haven't because um, a lot of the apartments in Melbourne and other neoliberal places uh, often got imported cladding, which contains asbestos that they don't declare. But Apart from the flammable cladding, that generally doesn't because it's flammable. <laughs> so you've got a choice between undeclared flammable cladding, not undeclared asbestos. That's right. Cladding. If your cladding isn't flammable, then it might have asbestos in it. <laughs> that Thanks to our deregulated uh, building industry, folks. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. But you can't stop progress, and apparently it's too 
regulated, like property developers. Oh, they're, yeah, they're, way they're, too regulated, they're, yeah. They're, they're still the victims. Oh, still they? the victims, <laughs> yeah. I moved into there. It was... Um, there were a lot of structural problems, like the uh, floors were sloping, so you'd always wonder if you'd roll off the bed or not. And well, it needed restumping, didn't it? The it, whole house was sort of falling down at one side. A fibro asbestos house falling down at one side with cracks in the walls, yeah. Yeah, so all of that, and the whole thing had a um, funny smell, and all for the privilege of $310 a week. What mm. was was so weirdly structured, it was like a one-bedroom house masquerading as a three-bedroom or something. Like, yeah. there's all this kind of empty space that you couldn't do with, but then very little space in which you could actually sleep in. And, and then it was at, a, like, a 75-degree angle, so you basically needed a hammock. Yeah. Just I mean, to... And that funny smell was, was mould. It was must, musty mould, because it was just damp coming in. Mm-mm. But um, you got to be grateful. And... and then there was the mice, of course. Oh, yes, yes. Um, Every day. Because there were gaping holes in the kitchen, and um, the mice would just kind of saunter and reproduce and mm. eat your food right in front of your eyes. Mm. Yeah, and then the letterbox was basically a vaguely letterbox-shaped rusting tetanus risk. Mm. Just like all the guttering. The guttering had long rusted away. <laughs> <laughs> so when it rained, there was no guttering. So the property manager, every time she did a um, housing audit, she'd walk past all of that and then she'd give her feedback that the grass needed to be kept cut. Um, yeah, and the grass was kept cut. It's that she wanted it cut like a golf course. She was obsessive about the grass. Yes, you'd think you'd be more obsessive about a rusting... Well, that's the irony. Was... The house was falling apart. It was mice-ridden. There was all kinds of holes in the walls. I mean, I mean you're going to come to all the other... Potentially all the putty in the windows had crumbled into dust. Part of the signing of the forms was um, a kind of an asbestos disclosure. When you signed the lease agreement, you were asked to sign a form acknowledging the fact that the house is made out of asbestos. So I guess they do that in the event that if you decide to drill a hole in the wall they're not liable because you are making asbestos unsafe by doing it through your actions. Mm. And I guess that's why they do that. And it's important to emphasise that because we'll come back to that later. It's a multi-faceted tale. Um, So leaving aside my rental for a minute, you bought a unit in Albany which needed a few asbestos-related adjustments. So I'm going to hand the floor over to you. Yeah, so I too went to the bank of mum and dad and asked for some support in buying a small house, part of a built strata in Albany, built in 1978. And the reason why I bought it is because it was built as a brick veneer. It's it's not a fibro house. I didn't want to buy a fibro house. And it was actually in a reasonable price range. I didn't think I'd be able to buy a brick veneer house in Albany 
for this amount, but it did need quite a bit of work doing to it. And I've always wanted to sort of be involved in renovating a place. So I thought this is my opportunity. So I went to my parents and I said, you know, can I have some support in doing this? And if need be, it can always go back in your name later on if you need the money back again. So they were open to that. And I obviously wanted to make sure that I checked for asbestos before I did any renovations because that's what you need to do. If you buy a house built before 1990 and you're going to renovate it, you absolutely need to audit it for asbestos and know where the asbestos is. You'll find asbestos in most Australian houses built, certainly built up until the mid-80s or the early 80s, but um, even up to 1990 potentially. And it was doing this, I think, that made me realise just how many products contain the stuff. I had no idea. And that sort of sent a few alarm bells ringing about the rental house, eh? You discovered a few generally unknown facts. Well, I found out that they used to put asbestos quite often into the putty uh, around windows. And I thought, hang on a minute, all the window putty in the rental house has turned to powder because obviously for 310 a week, you can't expect uh, putty that isn't powder. <laughs> so, you know, and it's like crikey. And then um, I also noticed that old vinyl sheet flooring, some old vinyl sheet flooring used to have a backing uh, made out of asbestos. Um, and this is like loose 100% white asbestos that was used as kind of an insulation so ironically, um, a lot of people are looking at, are understandably looking at things like uh, walls and fences and eaves. But people often overlook the fact that if you pull up an old vinyl floor from, I don't know, the 70s, you could potentially be exposing yourself to, to very, very friable. And when I say friable, I mean asbestos that is, is more easily breathed in. It's, it's, it's the stuff that you can basically break up in your hand and turn to powder that you you could potentially have a massive exposure risk through through something as innocent as pulling up an old vinyl floor not all sheet vinyl floors had asbestos backing but some did and it's something that you have to consider so that also sends another alarm bell about the rental house because there was old vinyl floors that had been ripped and Really worryingly, there was a white fibrous substance that was coming up through those rips. I think what had happened was before they rented the house out to you, they gave it a bit of a paint job and they painted the ceilings. And where they dragged the scaffolding across the vinyl floor to paint the ceiling, they'd ripped the floor and this white kind of fibrous substance was coming up and had been coming up ever since you'd moved in. Just like, hang on a minute, by, by researching this, it's like you might be potentially being exposed to friable asbestos through the crumbling putty in the windows and through the damaged vinyl floors. On top of the, the risk as well from the fact that um, there were cracks in the, in the fibro walls of the house, partly because it was um, falling down because it needed restumping. Uh, so, yeah, so that sent a few alarm bells ringing. Yes, and you definitely informed me of those alarmed bells. And then I thought, well, for safety reasons, 
because as far as I was aware of, of workplace safety, as soon as there's a friable, like a powdery asbestos risk, you have to pretty much move out straight away because it's hazardous and uninhabitable and causes a range of prospective and potential painful <laughs> diseases. Before I moved out, I thought I'd seek some legal advice because I thought, well, this happens all the time in WA and so surely there's a tight systemic response that's been honed over the decades since uh, Wittenoom um, that has something very cohesive to say about it. So called up Tenancy WA, they've got a third party legal thing that they used. It was $40 and I had to wait a week, including um, rescheduled phone calls, to have a 10 minute conversation with a lawyer. And what I really wanted to do was to have someone just check the emails that I was going to send to the real estate because this, this was all very new and novel <laughs> to me, funnily enough. So, you know, I didn't really know what my rights were, how to frame it. He gave me a bunch of legal clauses. He couldn't put anything in writing. I couldn't send anything in writing. So I had to memorise everything or try to memorise everything in 10 minutes in a rather heightened state. Mm. So anyway, the one thing I got from that is had to leave pretty... Well, straight away, pretty much. Straight away, yeah. Um, yeah. And, at least until the testing was done. Because literally, folks, there was literally white fibrous powder coming up through the floor, through the ripped vinyl floor, that may or may not have been asbestos. It's quite obvious. And the putty, the powder from the, the window frames was such that it would be scattered over like the window ledges. It even fallen over the, the back of the washing machine. There was this fine powder that was coming up through the corking, from the corking and the putty that had, that had degraded around um, all of the, the windows. So it really was a matter of don't really want to be living in this any, any longer until it's been tested, eh? I was um, made contact with a community legal service in Albany as well. They insisted that I had to have the conversation with the third-party tenancy WA people before they could take me on as a client. Of course, I had to relay the conversation to them mm. in writing. Mm. It's crazy, isn't it? And then I was on a wait list and it was a month mm. before I got one phone call from them and their automated appointment-making system failed on numerous occasions. Mm. Uh, the one lawyer for tenants got COVID. Mm. And they had a, um, a bit of a scare in the office, which meant it just, just, just meant it kept on getting rescheduled mm. until the time we spoke. It was a month after the fact. It's mm. just like, well, can't really stay in the house until such time. As, as someone might give me some information that might be useful. I mean, you left the house and most of this happened while you were in um, temporary accommodation, this ongoing conversation with the legal people. I was, I was trying to talk to both legal services at the same time. Yeah. 
but with an understanding of this was all going to very quickly, yeah, it was quite clear that this was going to take a very long time. Yeah. And so I left yeah. pretty much immediately. And and obviously you told the property manager straight away that you'd left the house because you thought you were being exposed to asbestos and that you'd left until such time that testing was done. And what was the response? Well, I called her up and she said I'd see what I can do. Mm. Um, the report I sent was pretty much ignored um, until I said, look, this is uninhabitable. I really shouldn't be paying for more rent until the testing is done. Mm. And obviously if the um, testing comes back negative, I'll pay right to the end of the lease. Mm. But if it's positive, mm. this means that it's <laughs> uninhabitable and uninhabitable places shouldn't be lived and paid for. And her her only real reference to what I was trying to say of the situation was that I signed a clause, um, that original asbestos clause. Then other than that, it was the one of the most brilliant displays of gaslighting I've ever... So, so just to confirm, you're saying that she refused to do the testing. She didn't she didn't organise for any testing to be done and referred you to the clause you signed at the start of the lease. That is correct. Wow. So the clause that you signed at the start of the lease, you were under the impression that that was a clause to make sure that, that you knew that if you did anything to the asbestos that made it more dangerous yourself, that you were liable for that. You didn't expect the clause to be used against you for exposure to asbestos that was not your fault and was actually in place before you moved in. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's that's really important to emphasise because that's quite worrying. I mean, what's the word? It, it's astounding that they can actually refuse to test for friable asbestos on the grounds that they got you to sign a clause at the start so basically, your health and safety was put secondary to the fact that they wanted you to keep paying rent. Is that right? They did offer to... Because I had about two months left on the lease. They offered, the landlords offered to cut it by three and a half weeks. Um, and there was this insinuation that I was leaving it towards the end of the lease to inform them and the suspicion why I didn't bring up issues before. And <laughs> the thing is, sometimes these things just happen. You don't find out about these things. Well, no, it was at that time it that I was doing time. the investigation. I bought this 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 place, um, this, this unit and I was doing the my own research into it which is why I told you and that moment I told you you basically put those balls into motion you, mm. you made the you started to move out you con you tried to get legal advice and you contacted the property manager um, what worries me is if there's ever a test of advocacy for tenants' rights, it's asbestos. If, if, if you're being exposed to asbestos in your home and the agencies responsible for advocating for tenants 
can't help you, then that's indicative of how bad things are because you know asbestos is something that is extremely serious and I'm, I, I'm astounded that you didn't get immediate help and support and that you were basically left out on a limb and you didn't seem to have any kind of legal rights to fall back on without going down the path of getting a lawyer and a solicitor and spending huge amounts of money. Yes, because the uh, professional, the asbestos testing professional that I ended up having to employ and pay um, myself to get the asbestos testing done, which, look, thankfully turned negative Mm. in the end, which Mm. was a huge relief. Indeed. Because the story doesn't stop there and all the people I tried to contact to get some form of answers from. But the end of the tale is it did turn negative, which was a which was a huge relief. But he informed me that if it does turn out positive, it doesn't stop there in terms of the tenant's rights. Like, basically, you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, with, with private lawyers uh, against a very well-resourced real estate sector, uh, you have to teach yourself all the ins and outs of law. Now, I did one unit of occupational health and safety law in an age, and I can tell you it's like the worst of humanities and the worst of science Mm. because you need to be creatively particular. Mm. And it it requires a certain form of 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 brain to mm. be able to do that so teaching yourself the ins and outs of law uh, wasn't something i was particularly looking forward to no but anyway moved uh, out of the house very quickly and had to get a, rid of a lot of furniture that was in the path of billowing <laughs> window putties and um, well, that's right, because you hadn't got those test results by then, so you didn't want to move like the mattress, did you? The mattress had literally been on top of the rips of the vinyl, because when you moved in, you just put the mattress on the straight down on the floor. So the mattress had literally been on top of the white fibres, so that had to be taken down to the tip, um, because you couldn't really store it and risk contaminating anything else. And by then, of course, I mean, obviously the, the real estate agent hadn't, be shown any interest in doing any testing mm. and it takes a while I mean you've got to get an asbestos professional in to test it and then you've got to wait for the results and in the meantime you need to be moving out and you've got to get re- put your furniture somewhere so some of the furniture had to go which was a shame yeah 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 it wasn't very degrowth having to get rid of a bunch of furniture no, but no. um so you know there, there was um several days of of paid temporary accommodation in Albany and um, I had bought some land by that stage and it just felt a bit ironic here are all these properties and none of them are suitable for habitation I did have a uncle with a holiday house in the Perth Hills he very kindly let me uh, stay there Mm. for a couple of months until this was all sorted I contacted the Albany Council, the Environmental Department in the Albany Council. And as we all know, when you call a council, it's all very straightforward and there are 
I need all too eager to, to help you out immediately without any mad bureaucracy. But basically I was informed that um, they struggle to legally get involved in uh, landlord-tenant relations. Surprise, surprise. But they would call up the real estate agent and give them a word. Mm. I called up WorkSafe um, and got hold of someone. And that was the, probably the most constructive conversation with someone I had in a month. And this was like the fifth person I spoke to on the phone. She at least, reluctantly, quite a bit of heavy sighing, of course, but she reluctantly agreed to um, read the remainder of the drafts that I was writing to the real estate agent and um, give some feedback whether that was framed okay or not. And that was the closest that I had to uh, someone helping me out mm. <laughs> in, in, in this whole thing um, with, with a substance that can kill. Um, you also tried to help me in your, uh, in your pity <laughs> by calling the health department and an asbestos professional in the health department and you had a very funny exchange, didn't you? Well, I wanted to see what we can learn from this and what good can come out of it in terms of policy change because, as you say, in this case, it did come out, the testing did come out negative, but it could easily have come out positive. The person who did the, the testing said it was a 50-50 chance with the window putty, well, especially with the, with the, of the sheet vinyl flooring. I mean, he'd done another test that same day on another piece of very similar sheet vinyl flooring in another house, and that had come back positive. So for me, it's like, well, what can we learn from this? We know that in the public housing sector, they have strict criteria in terms of assessing for asbestos and managing it and keeping a record of it, which doesn't seem to be the case with private rentals. There doesn't seem to be any understanding and management plan. The onus is on the tenants to sign a form that the real estate agent can then use as a means of basically ignoring responsibilities around asbestos and that needs to change. So I called the health department who and talked to their asbestos person and expressed how I think it's important that there is more legislation in place to ensure that real estate agents renting houses there is a record a proper record made and a management plan made of the asbestos in any house before it's rented especially in those houses built before the late 80s and his response was well the real estate agent industry isn't going to like that. And I said, well, no, they probably won't, but that's not the point. Oh, it's a very important issue. And then he said... I love this. And then he said, well, we don't want to be too demanding of the real estate agent industry. We don't want to be too much of a nanny state, he said, because we, we are a, a prosperous society thanks to the fact that we're not a nanny state. And I was like, hang on a minute. 
are you saying that our prosperity, that we should be grateful for our prosperity because we are giving real estate agents free reign in terms of not taking responsibility for important health and safety issues in the private rental sector. It, it just reminded me that there are still a lot of people who are still very much think that market deregulation and removing so-called red tape in bureaucracy is part of the pathway forward when everything that we've learnt is that the the more we deregulate bigger problems we get further down the track, whether that's through the building industry, through asbestos coming into the country, through cheap building products, or whether or not it's people in the private rental market who are being exposed, and not just asbestos, but mould and a whole host of other issues that people have to deal with in rental houses because landlords basically are increasingly uh, given a free reign in terms of what they can rent out. And because there's so much demand for rental property now, tenants are increasingly having to accept housing conditions that they otherwise wouldn't accept and for increasingly higher prices. So the whole system is rotten to the core. And this phone call really brought that home to me. It's like, wow, you know, I would have thought someone in the health department would be really empathetic to the fact that there needs to be more legislation to make real estate agents uh, responsible for ensuring that there is, you know, the health and safety of tenants is paramount. Yeah, the giveaway that I learned from this exchange, which relates this story to the bigger discussions on post-growth, degrowth system change, is that the prosperous economy and the prosperous economic system, the prosperous housing sector is more important than the health and well-being of the individual and the renter is considered a pretty cheap life. I mean, the house that they're renting isn't cheap, but their lives are considered pretty cheap, cogs in a wheel. And this isn't just a WA phenomena. Um, in the Melbourne days, rented numerous places, knew a lot of people renting places, and there were mould, there was structural damage, there were things in which made people's lives very unsafe with climate change. So know people that were renting in um, Perth and they couldn't get the air conditioner fixed and the real estate agents and the landlords couldn't give two fucks and so they ended up moving back to Canada. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rather because it was just they couldn't literally live in Perth anymore. Well, that's right. I mean, those those people went through the same tenancy advocacy process that you went through and went through the, the same channels and ended up getting nowhere to the point where they were going to have to spend large amounts of money going through a solicitor to try and get that to happen. And they just didn't have the, the money or the time or the energy. It was just easier to leave. And, and I guess the real estate agent knew that some poor desperate person would, would accept that place without air conditioning in Perth. And, you know, it gets very hot in Perth in the summer. Mm. Um, but a lot of people in rental houses accept the fact that they don't have air conditioning. And 
a lot of Australian houses, are, as we know, are not built very well. And that's another thing about those, these fibro asbestos houses. They, they get very hot in the summer. They are very cold in the winter. So they require a lot of energy to heat and cool. And that's another reason why it would be good to gradually phase them out. Now, I'm a big believer in not demolishing decent, robust houses. I'm a big believer in the retro suburbia movement where it's all about maintaining, improving and retrofitting our existing built stock as much as possible. I, I think it's very wasteful to pull decent, solid houses down and replace them, even if we're replacing them with something that is better designed. But there's still a huge number of houses in Australia and especially in Western Australia and that are actually not worth keeping partly because they are mostly built out of fibro asbestos and also for that very reason because they're so expensive to heat and cool. So we do have a lot of potential with these old fibro houses to either pull them down completely in a very safe way with proper asbestos professionals to do the right thing and replace them with well-designed, medium-density public housing or cooperative housing and use those opportunities to, to do that really decent precinct planning that we need in the um, existing built form to get some much-needed medium-density housing diversity in place. Or also, another option is for some of these old fibro houses is to actually remove the asbestos and reclad them with something that's more modern and better insulated because a lot of them have very good bones. They're built around uh, Jarrah frames. If you strip off all the asbestos and reclad it, they can actually come up, scrub up quite nicely. In a post-growth society, planning and development will very much be about, rather than looking to build on more greenfield sites, looking at the existing built form and how we can either improve on it, maintain it, retrofit it, and in some cases remove bad developments that have already happened and how we can create new livable communities. And I think that with our asbestos legacy, a lot of planning and development in a post-growth society will be looking at ways of removing asbestos and creating better planning and development outcomes and using that as a pathway towards better planning and development outcomes. So there's a lot of excitement there, but there'll be plenty of jobs in asbestos removal. So that's that's one thing that will grow in a post-growth society. If the WA government allows, and uh, what are some of the problems with WA laws that will make asbestos removal prohibitive? For people who are renovating... I would certainly make it free to dispose of asbestos rather than the high cost that it is now. And one of the reasons for that is there's a lot of illegal asbestos dumping going on in Western Australia especially, and that's because people don't want to pay the money to properly dispose of it. Uh, when you take asbestos to the tip, you have to double wrap it in plastic and label it and then you pay more. And that's that's a very important thing to do. It, it 
dumping asbestos illegally is a very serious offence, and rightly so. If you're removing asbestos, you're actually doing the whole community service. It's, it's less asbestos in circulation. Everyone benefits from it, and it should be, it should be free. So that's certainly the first thing I would do. And I would also think that there needs to be grants to provided to people, especially first-home buyers, who are entering into the housing market and are wanting to renovate and retrofit houses. As we try and retrofit houses to make them uh, uh, lower carbon, we are going to be coming across asbestos more and more. So there needs to be more education, because everyone in Western Australia is going to come across asbestos at some point in their lives. More grants, making it free to dispose of it, creating a society where we provide financial incentives towards organisations and public housing providers to purchase old fibro houses so that they can use uh, that as an opportunity to remove them and build new public cooperative housing in the existing built form and to, so that we can focus on removing the old fibro asbestos houses and use that as an area to increase densities rather than pulling down decent federation houses and post-federation houses that could very easily be retrofitted and made very livable in a low-carbon society. All this and more is part of the discussion on Town Planning Rebellion. Yes, indeed. You have a uh, website and a social media group, a Facebook group. You've also been interviewed on many and several occasions. I know there are some YouTube videos of you giving Zoom presentations to groups as well. So there, there is a movement and an interest There's out there. bits of me scattered around the internet. Just like the bits of asbestos I found around my uh, uncle's property when I was staying there. But that's another story. We, we could talk for hours here. But the whole misadventure can be found on the PGAP blog. And it can be found on MediumNet. I will provide a link in the show notes. So if uh, listening wasn't enough, you could read all about it again. We're both going to be co-writing an article on what we learnt from the situation <laughs> with the fact there is so much asbestos in Australia and uh, how we will need to manage that and handle that over the ensuing years, especially as a lot of old asbestos roofs and fences are getting older and older and will need to be replaced, and how we can use this as, a, as an opportunity to actually look at good planning and development outcomes. But again, this requires a completely different approach to planning and development. So um, it always comes back to the need, to the fact that we need to start planning for people and nature under a post-growth model of living, rather than the current scenario now, which is basically building cheaply built rapidly built greenfield development, poor standard densification, which ironically sometimes is bringing more asbestos into the system. So we've got people trying to take asbestos out of the system, but it's coming in and there's been a couple of notable examples like the Perth Children's Hospital is a notable example of asbestos that came into the system that shouldn't have come in. So uh, yeah, it's an interesting topic. It's an interesting uh, way in, asbestos a way in, to looking at um, planning and development under a post-growth system.
It is an interesting way in. Um, I, in an ideal world, one wouldn't have had to have gone through it. No. But um, what is uh, hardest to bear makes is uh, not sweetest to remember, but makes uh, activists of us all. Uh, also, it is a good lesson of trying to avoid the mistakes of the past and getting active before the next construction material disaster comes along. For example, I'm building a house at the moment. With your help, Mark, I um, talked the builders out of making the kitchen bench out of engineered stone because what is the problem with engineered stone? Well, it's silicosis, which is the the modern-day equivalent of asbestos in terms of the immediate health problems that that causes. And a lot of people who work cutting manufactured stone in order to make things like kitchen worktops, workbenches, it's becoming a massive problem. And um, I think the statistics are quite scary. I think maybe one in three or one in two, I need to check, people who work with it have silicosis, which is a fatal disease. And it just blows my mind that this isn't a national scandal and a national outrage. What blows my mind even more is the fact that we have really good alternatives to manufactured stone now that look and feel exactly the same, which, guess what, made out of recycled glass, and we've got plenty of glass bottles that need recycling, Mm. and yet you try and encourage developers or builders to use this material, they're extremely reluctant, and it should be... The go-to product that if you if you want to have a, a stone-style kitchen bench top in your home, recycled glass bottles is the way. It doesn't create silicosis when you work with it, and we need to be phasing out manufactured stone. And that's this should be just a given after all the all the all what we've learnt from the asbestos issue. It seems like we're making those mistakes again. I know, it seems to be no end to the fuckwittery, but here on PGAP, <laughs> we're part of the movement to defuck, de- defuck the wittery. We're going to defuck the wittery. <laughs> mm, one insidious disease at a time. Yeah. Yeah. We might wrap it up there, but firstly, a couple of shout-outs. One is um, Alex Borman, um, the most popular guest that I've had on PGAP History has just released a documentary on the housing situation. He's a huge proponent of public housing and public renting as a solution to the um, disasters that result from the private rental sector. And also home ownership that entrenches us, can entrench us into the matrix because in order to afford multi-million dollar houses uh, you, you really have to tap into the system yes be part of the movement join town planning rebellion word of mouth is definitely required to get the message out um, as i said pgap briefly touching the top six percent of global podcasts um, let's Push that into the top 5%. You can do that. You, you listener right here, right now, can do that by rating and reviewing PGAP on Apple Podcasts, sharing it with your loved ones or hated ones or the neighbourhood cat or whoever. By, by word of mouth, we can counter in some way the heavily resource-vested interests in big business via big 
News Corp, etc., etc., media. Sounds good. <laughs> I hope so, yes. So share widely and vastly. Mark, how did you find your co-hosting experience? I enjoyed it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. Would you like to do intros and outros for the rest of this season? Go on then. <laughs> as long as you give me coffee. Uh, that can be arranged. Okay. And and if it all works well and you do a fifth season, we'll have to change the graphical assets because at the moment it's got my mug, mm. my facial mug, mm. so we'll either have to have two facial mugs or... <laughs> Worlds might not even be here by season five, so we'll worry about it. <laughs> two, two Duma? All right, I won't go. <laughs> it depends how much the listeners spread this podcast far and wide. So, you know, the future's watching, in your hands. I'm watching the Doomsday Glacier melt in front of my eyes. I'm wondering how many seasons there'll be. <laughs> well, thank you, dear listener, for listening. <laughs> We will look forward to talking toward your general uh, virtual direction in subsequent episodes. <laughs>